Seventeen-year-old me was friends with a guy called Guy. Guy Rogers was his name, and probably still is. It's hard to remember Guy at seventeen, as he seemed already to be maturing towards inscrutability, and by that I mean aloofly adult to another young person's eyes, an almost man of few words, but maybe maybe more a man-boy, prone to beard-scratching deliberation and slightly aureate sermonics. Not in a grandstanding way, Guy's word-draped thoughts were always searching for the gnomic, the epigrammatic, the sententious even. But weren't so many of us doing some version of that then? And of course some of us are doing some version of that now, still. Guy, I surmised, saw himself as a deep thinker, and even then wrote poetry, which got turned into song lyrics for his younger brother's band, Keith, hello, which was called Fever 103, after a Sylvia Plath poem. A Sylvia Plath poem which has in it that wonderfully inflamed line, Does not my heat astound you, and my light? All by myself, I am a huge camellia, glowing and coming and going, flush on flush. Many of Guy's lofty lyrics, I can still remember now, word for word, note for note, 34 years later. For example, the old man kisses the baby and then he rapes the child. The child she runs, she runs away, into the twilight, twilight child. Yes, I can remember and even sing those words to Keith's tune, as I did whilst writing Guy's lyrics from my head to the screen this morning, 34 years later. Don't worry, I will spare you the ditty, but I could, if you really wanted me to, sing it. For I was, I really was, the vocalist of Fever 103 for a while, as strange as that now sounds to me, and... And it is, and it does. Guy wasn't a particularly tortured soul, although I think he wanted to be. His song, Twilight Child, was clearly a homage, maybe, as well as a mashup of sorts, of the lyricists he was enthralled to at the time. Robert Smith, I think, and maybe Ian Curtis, and definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, Bono. Everyone in Fever 103, apart from me, were all massive U2 fans, fanatical about the group, pietistic even, always referencing musical ideas from The Joshua Tree, which had just come out to great acclaim in that year, 1987, transporting those four Irish fellows who'd met at their comprehensive school in Clantoff, Dublin, into the preening, bombastic stadium rock god poses that still flit across our screens from time to time. And for this reason, I could always hear as a foil to my voice Bono's grave and keening tones doing as they would have done much fuller justice to Guy's tortured lyrics than I could. Love is a temple, love a higher 
Guy even admitted to me once that when he and Keith had written Twilight Child, they had imagined Bono delivering the anthem, elevating their words and music to Empyrean heights, as opposed to this bloke Steve, who unfortunately for Guy and Keith, sang the Fever 103 oeuvre according to his own pop ideas and Dionysian ideals. My touchstones in 1987 being Prince, Sign of the Times, Terence Trent Darby's glorious first album, introducing the hardline according to Terence Trent Darby, Darby at the Bournemouth Pavilion, 1988, epic, and Michael Jackson's bad. Guy got together with Jackie, who in my memory also seems much older now, certainly much older than me, a clever, grounded, already her own person person. Unlike Guy, who was no doubt doing what the rest of us were doing at the time, which was trying on certain identity kits or costumes to see if they suited us. At a certain point, the romance ended, and various sixth formers, including myself, became Jackie's counsellors, as she was at this point suffering to a suicidal degree all of the crazy-making feelings of abandonment and despair, the sort of pain and anguish which usually follows after one human animal puts his penis into another and then talks in the patois of romantic love until their boyfriend and girlfriend holding hands on that coach trip into London for everyone studying A-level English to go and see Shakespeare's Macbeth at the Barbican. Until, until, for whatever reason, this purportedly unconditional, eternally fused connection like all the other phenomena of the universe suddenly becomes subject to the laws of impermanence and is over. Jackie was also, like Guy, writing lots of poetry then and showed me a whole sheaf of her A4 fountain pen scrawlings, hundreds of pages torn out of exercise books, some of them stained with blood, the bloodied pages no doubt written in the aftermath of the breakup when self-harm sometimes pokes its way into the bouncy castle, the bouncy castle even, of love and sex, further hastening its expiration. I remember a conversation with Jackie, the two of us traversing the Ferndown Upper School parking lot, Jackie talking incessantly about Guy, eyes blotched by teary mascara, trying to persuade me to hold on to her dog-eared wedge of tortured outpourings that was clearly the entire gory focus of her young life at that moment. I'm not sure why I was supposed to take care of her poems. It was all part of that perverse logic, the psychologic, in other words, psycho-illogical logic of Eros. I don't think I ever became, though, a sort of fully signed-up Max Brod to her Kafka because I can't remember any of the content of the poems, not a a single line. Although between you and me, ou le meaningful content of the love poem. There we go, that's uh, O-level French for you. (laughs) ou le meaningful content of the love poem, a category primarily constructed out of longing, lust, loss, and a whole bunch of other L words. Or, I don't know, maybe I had taken the poems away with me as she'd wanted and read a handful and found them insufferably one-note and dull as other people's love affairs uh, sometimes, maybe even often are, to the friends or family or therapists who are privy to each blow-by-blow account of them. All those 
misunderstood messages and mismatched expectations, the incongruities between the demands of the body and the stories or fantasies in our minds, the whole fucking shambolic, fandangled relational mess of it all. That was Jackie and Guy. Guy and Jackie, and every other shambolic love story ever since Romeo and Juliet and all the other lovesick wannabe pairings that preceded them. At that point in my life, I had yet to experience sex, love, romance, to to play the game of love as Jackie and Guy were playing it, though God forbid you might communicate that to romantics of any stripe, it being a game, Uh, this being the take-home that I think was transmitted to me about romantic love, which at the time... I had no interest in listening to. But if I had listened, I would have heard an older version of myself going, yes, yes, you're right. It is a lovely, sweet, delicious, but fundamentally silly and often stupid game for the most part, driven by the energies of the libido, but bonosized histrionics and melodramatics at its core. And what a serious game we often turn it into, with every adult in every film we ever watch playing the game as if it were the only game in town. And maybe for the human animal, as well as all our non-human animal pals, once fed and watered and given away to continue surviving, what else is there in this world for us to do but hunt for love, the giving and receiving of? Which for some turns out to be children, the quick or sometimes delayed offspring of these so-called love pairings. Is this not fundamentally our lot as animal humans to love? Which is to say, to be done by or with, maybe, to even be used in regard to sex and romance and all those other forms of animal-human attachment not described herein. And after a bit of that, well, presumably some combo of sickness, old age and death, Surely it's better to be used by love than the terrible triumvirate we all receive a personal visit from eventually. 17-year-old me, Jackie and Guy's friend, their third, their confidant, was still wandering around the moats of Eros at this time, eyeing up the turrets and the parapets, the drawbridge with its heavy chains, the impossible amount of time it took for that fucking drawbridge to be lowered if it ever was, and it never was. But at that moment, surely I say to my younger self, it must have been evident to your yet-to-be-blinded eyes that love, in the words of Amy Winehouse, is a losing game. A bit like roulette or any of those other addictive resource-draining flutters where we all know that the house, the gambling den, is the only real winner. Similarly, perhaps in romantic love, the life force embodied in sex and its purported reason for sexual congress is mainly what drives the Eros Sharabank, often over a cliff, though sometimes not, fingers crossed, etc. Would this stop me from playing this game for the next 30 years as if I too were on a Bono-like mission? We're all Bonos in love. Bonobos also. Is that not what love offers us, actually? You know, cheesy as it sounds, karaoke cheesy even, to stand on a stage in leather trousers and sunglasses, ecstatically self-involved like some kind of love-seeking heat missile, the one-pointed focus and frenzy of Eros and its love bombs as the crowds, real ones for Bono, fake ones for us, go wild in support and affiliation of this ineffably important union. Falling in love seems to dislocate our sense of what is significant, 
Aberrant behaviour ensues. Rules of decorum go by the wayside, almost as if we were being used by Eros, as if we had no choice in the matter, which I believe now to be the case. I find a picture of Amy Winehouse online, who in 1987 was a striking-looking infant of four years old, porcelain skin, brunette curls. She's staring quizzically at the last mouthful of a banana still enclosed in its skin, the least satisfying part, as we all know. Most satisfying, the first bite. Least satisfying, the last. Right? Sappho invented a word for this, both the eating of bananas and being consumed by them. Glucupricon. Let me try that again. Glucupicron. Glucupicron. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it correctly. Glucupicron. Yes, glucupicron is the word which translates from the ancient Greek as sweet, glucu, and bitter, picron. Although in English, we often swap those two terms around, agreeing as we get wiser that much of love and everything else has a more paradoxical, bittersweet character, even the best of our relationships. But sweet bitterness, gluku picron, is how I now like to think of eros or romantic love. That first mouthful, so intoxicating and pleasurable, then the main banana-rama, highs, lows, 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 highs, lows, lows, etc. And then the drop, the splatter, the kaplunk. Pleasure and pain, writes Anne Carson, at once register upon the lover inasmuch as the desirability of the love object derives in part from its lack. To whom is it lacking? To the lover. If we follow the trajectory of Eros, she goes on to explain, we consistently find it tracing out the same route. It moves from the lover toward the beloved, then ricochets back to the lover himself and the hole in him, unnoticed before. Who is the real subject of most love poems? Not the beloved. It is that hole. When I desire you, a part of me is gone. My want of you partakes of me. End quote. When I desire you, a part of me is gone. My want of you partakes of me. The antithesis of this is that dutiful and responsible love, the love between some parents and their children, between some couples, especially couples with human or non-human animal children perhaps, once the fizz and the sparkle has for the most part, waned or even fizzed itself out. That's the kind of bond I'm thinking of when I use the L word these days. I love Max with all my heart. I would do almost anything for him. Clean his shit off the floor or the sheets when he has explosive diarrhea. Go out in the freezing cold and the rain so that he can exercise. That's what I now choose to think of as love. That's the bond, the joy, the devotional sacrifice, if you want, that deserves the word love to be used as a descriptor for it. But a human animal in a strop about what was said or not said at some point in a series of WhatsApp text messages? That's not love, at least not for this iteration of myself. That's Eros, folks. Again, from Anne Carson. Eros is expropriation. He robs the body of limbs, substance, integrity, and leaves the lover essentially less. 
This attitude toward love is grounded for the Greeks in oldest mythical tradition. Hesiod describes in his Theogony how castration gave birth to the goddess of love, Aphrodite, born from the foam around Uranus's severed genitals. Love does not happen without loss of vital self. The lover is the loser. End quote. So the next time we swipe right on Bumble or Tinder or Hinge and it's all way hey for a while, this is us enjoying some of that blood-flecked foam from the magnificent sky god Uranus, husband to Gaia, who got his dick lopped off with an adamantine sickle equipped with jagged teeth and wielded in this case by his own son, Kronos, the dick-chopping sickle gifted to the boy by Uranus's beloved wife, Gaia. But let's give the last word to Jackie and Amy. Over futile odds and laughed at by the gods. And now, the final frame. Love is a losing game. For you I was a flame Here's a losing game Five story fires You came Love is a losing game One I wish I never played Oh, what a mess We made And now the final frame Love is a losing game Played out by the band Love is a losing hand And it was more that I, I could stand Love is a losing hand Self-professed Profound Till the chips Hurt down Though you're a gambling man Resign and the memories they mar my mind. 